Well, I hope that y'all are doing well this afternoon. We're going to find ourselves taking a big old chunk of what Ephraim just read. We're going to find ourselves in Malachi 2, verses 17, and we're going to work our way through chapter 3, verse 6. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and open or load your Bible. And, and while you do that, just a quick reminder that we have Bibles in the pews available for you, and so take that. That is our gift to you. In addition to that, if you visit our website, we have these things called discipleship guides. We want to help you grow uh, in grace as disciples of Jesus. And so we write up a bunch of different content for you to download download for free. And so that is to you. That's our gift to you. It includes family worship and discipleship, study group questions, and so on. All of that is available for you on the website. So with all that being said, let's dig in. And if you just walked in once more, we're in Malachi 2, Uh, verse 17, and we're traveling through chapter 3, verse 6. Let's go. So let's see if you can help me with a few quick responses. Some of you may be familiar with these expressions. Some of you may not be, and therefore you're just going to learn some more today. Okay? Here we go. So if I say God is good, what do you say? All the time. time. If I add all of the time, what would you say? God is good. Some of you are wondering, well, where where does that come from? Well, some Baptists thought they would be cool and come up with it. Um, It comes from the Psalms and also the gospel according to John, but they were trying to be creative with that. In any case, because now we know this expression, the question is, do you believe it? See, Israel didn't. If we were dropped in the temple in the days of Malachi and opened up with this expression, even if it was known, Israel would have responded with, if I were to have said, God is good, Israel would have responded with, when is he good? Or they would probably respond with something like, why do you say that he's good? In Malachi, we learn just how deep Israel's apathy had grown so much that they had forgotten about the goodness of God for them. In the event that you haven't been here for the last five weeks, we've been walking through Malachi where the structure of it sets up like this. God accuses Israel of some sin. He accuses them and makes a claim to them. Israel then challenges that claim and then God responds by presenting the truth of his accusation to Israel. With that, let me give you a brief summary of where we've been the last couple of weeks because, man, Israel's 0-3 right now. Every time they continue to respond to challenge God's claim, God hooks them up with the proof of his accusation. So they're 0-3. Let me give you a quick overview of where we've been. In week one, we see God not necessarily bring an accusation but an affirmation to Israel saying, I have loved you. I have loved you, I've chosen you from the very beginning. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I chose to love you in spite of all of the other nations. And so Israel shoots back by saying, how have you loved us? And so God walks them all the way back from the days of Genesis and brings them to the present. 
In weeks two and three, we see that God's accusation was to Israel in general, but specifically to the priests concerning their worship being worthless, their sacrifices being unsacrificial, and God accuses them of having grown apathetic in their worship, in their walk, in the way in which they view God. And so Israel shoots back by saying, "How? where, how have we actually grown apathetic? How has our sacrifice not actually been sacrificial? And so God lays out that they bring before him animals that are lame and sick and blemished, that the priests do not guard the knowledge of God, that they do not provide godly instruction to the people of God. And now, we're actually back up, and then last week, which is week four, God brings a third accusation to Israel concerning their unfaithfulness, and he uses two examples to both prove and illustrate just how unfaithful Israel had become. He uses the examples of men who are marrying outside of the covenant community, men who are divorcing their Israelite wives so that they would go and marry wives of a foreign God. And in doing so, God accuses them by saying, see, the way you're acting is a representation of what you actually think about me and my covenant with you. As a result, Israel's logic is, if we were to do this, the men of Israel are thinking, if we were to pursue these women, what it does for us is it grants us and secures us social benefit. There's no way that the pursuit of this is going to affect our worship of God. He's totally gonna bless us because we're still gonna bring sacrifices to him. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. And so now we come to the fourth accusation where God is frustrated by Israel and they're asking the question, how could you be frustrated with us? That's where we pick up in our time. I want you to see that God reminds Israel that that his goodness is grounded in his character, not theirs. His goodness is rooted in his faithfulness, not theirs. Not theirs, excuse me. So we're gonna consider three things this afternoon. We're gonna consider the problem, the promise, and a purified people. The problem, the promise, and a purified people. Once more, we're in Malachi 2, verse 17, working our way through chapter three, verse six. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll begin in verse 17. God, as we come before you, we begin by praising you for your grace and your goodness your grace in saving us and making us yours, your goodness in our maturity, your goodness in allowing us to gather so that we would not only listen to the preached word, but so that we would make much of your name, so that we would exalt Jesus. Lord, to that effect, give us ears to listen and give us hearts with conviction, and not the kind of conviction that simply leads us to guilt, but the kind of conviction that compels us to change, all because of your work in us. God, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. Um, We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. Let's begin with verse 17. Let me read it, because this is the last time we'll be in chapter two. And then we'll travel into chapter three. Here's here's what's going on. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? 
by saying, this is God responding to Israel, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? All right, here we go. This is the fourth accusation in Malachi. And God is saying, hey, you have wearied me. You have frustrated me. Now, that's kind of a trippy thing to hear, right? In Exodus, God reveals himself as steadfast, merciful, gracious, loving, long-suffering. And yet here in Malachi, he's saying, you are frustrating me, right? You are frustrating me. Israel has wearied God with their words. See, Israel has become cynical. And as a result of their cynicism, they're now complaining. And in their cynicism, as we have looked at Malachi, as, uh, in their cynicism, excuse me, in their cynicism, they have grown apathetic toward God. Their complaining is incessant and self-righteous. And so God is telling them, you have frustrated me. So Israel responds. They challenge this accusation. How have we wearied you? How have we made you frustrated? And ultimately, the way they're asking or the way they're pushing back on God's claim is that they're mocking him. They're, they're ultimately saying, you're the God who is slow to anger. You're the one who is steadfast in love. How could it be that we're possibly doing anything that you're accusing us of? The problem with cynicism, particularly with Israel, but in general, the problem with cynicism is that a great deal of it is based on experience. See, in Israel's experience, life has been difficult. And as a result, it has led them to the conclusion that God must not love them, that God has probably forgotten about them, that God has left them, that though they are back from captivity, they're still being oppressed by the Persians. And that though the temple is rebuilt, their apathy has consumed their entire lives. Have any of you ever felt that way? When your circumstances are difficult, you're experiencing a season of hardship, or just simply things aren't going your way, we begin to question whether or not God is even uh, involved. Is he going to intervene? Is he even good? What, what's, when's God going to do something? That's ultimately what Israel is doing. They are accusing God of not being good. They're accusing him of not following up on his promises. Genesis 12, one through three, we're gonna go all the way back for a moment. Here's, here's what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, who later became Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel comes from the line of Abraham. This is a promise that God makes with Abraham, right? He was a pagan worshiper, turned someone who, uh, who knew God because God called him, God chose him, and the entire people of Israel come from him. Israel is pointing back to this covenant saying, hey, when are these promises going to happen? Remember when you said we'd have a land where like honey flowed like wine? Uh, where is it? Right? They're questioning, they're challenging the character of God, that if he truly is a God of true justice, 
Why is he allowing bad things to happen to good people? Why are bad people getting away with evil? That's why they mock him by saying, where is the God of justice? They're ultimately challenging. Have you changed? When we look at Genesis 12, have you changed your mind? Because I don't see the fruition of these promises. Look, it's really easy, and we see it demonstrated in Israel, and you and I are not immune to this. It's really easy to think God has changed his mind because you and I change so much. And so we attribute like human emotion and human process to God. And you're like, I don't know. Do you think people can change? I think that people can totally change. Have you ever been to a high school reunion? Like, by God's grace, I have not been to one. And so when it comes to seeing pictures online, people change. I don't care what your ideology is, right? People change. And after 20 years, I'm thankful I haven't gone back, right? And I'm not saying I haven't changed, because I totally have. But that's a really good example. In Israel's self-assessment, or excuse me, in their self-righteous assessment, they're trying to corner God because they think he's changed his mind, right? Pulling from Genesis 12, Israel's ultimately saying, remember the covenant you made with us? Where are the promises of that covenant? Remember when you told us that you were good? Where is that goodness for us right now? Remember when you said you would wipe out the wicked? Why are they prospering? Israel is accusing and challenging God on some of the same things you and I ask today. You and I, why are bad people advancing? Why don't you intervene? Why, Why is this my life? Why am I in this season, dot, 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 again? When are you gonna take me from this? Israel portrays herself as the hero or the good guy in this storyline. Israel's challenging God by saying, hey, we're the good guys. The Persians, they are the bad guys. Why are they prospering? But check it, when we relate it to ourselves, we need to remember that the Bible isn't a book where there are good guys and bad guys and Jesus saves the good guys. No, there are only bad guys. And then there are Jesus, right? He's the only one in the story of redemption that has a white cowboy hat. If you've never watched any of the old school westerns, right? The good guy always had the white cowboy hat. The bad guy always has the black cowboy hats. All of us are wearing black cowboy hats. And then there's Jesus, right? Israel is trying to switch the story around and saying, hey, that covenant, we're deserving of it. We're good guys. They're bad guys. How come they're prospering? Why aren't you going to do something about this? I thought you said you were good. So Israel begins to posture herself as judge. But what have we seen in the last couple of weeks? I just gave you this brief overview. What have we seen in the last couple of weeks, right? Israel saying like, hey, we're the good guys. Uh, When? You're worthless. Your, Your worship is worthless. Your priests aren't guarding the word. You are marrying non-Christians. You are uh, divorcing your wives for your social benefit. Um, You're consistently faithless. When, I'm sorry, where are you good? Israel doesn't sound too different from the bad guys. Like Israel, you and I are similar. We're quick to overlook our own sin and even faster to categorize what we think is important sins and unimportant sins. 
See, we're quick to have our own list of important sins, and when they're committed against us, we want immediate justice. And when it comes to those unimportant sins, we are good at justifying why God should understand why we do or did what we did. Once more, reflecting on the last couple of chapters, right, when, when Israel presents worthless sacrifices to God, right, what's Israel's motivation? Hey, at least we're sacrificing something, right? They're not taking personal responsibility of their heart, of their sin. When God accuses them of having faithless hearts, they're ultimately saying, no, 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 no you don't get it. It's not going to affect our worship with you. And it does. They're quick to justify why they do what they do so that God would understand. You and I do the exact same thing. Yet the truth about God's justice, which is what they're after, the truth about God's justice is that when he comes, he will judge both what you and I consider the important sins and the unimportant sins. That when he judges, he will judge both the publicly immoral and the privately immoral. Cynicism causes us to assess God based on our character, our judgment, not his. And so now God responds. This is chapter three. Now we're looking at verses one through five. And I love this. Here we go. Ready? Verse one, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In the Hebrew, the way the language is set up, right, is they ask the question, where is the God of justice? And in this section, the way the Hebrew language sets it up is God answering, here I am, which is such a boss answer, right? They're like, where are you? And he's like, I'm, I'm right here. I'm right here. And so he, 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 when we look at our translations, he unpacks it. Behold, I send my messenger. Now, verse one has two tenses, right? A little bit of English 101 here, right? It has two tenses. It has a present tense and it has a future tense implication, a present and a future. So when God says, behold, I send my messenger, the little phrase, my messenger, is also the name for Malachi. So in a way, it's a present reality. In other words, God is saying, uh, you know, they're asking, hey, where are you? And he's saying, I have sent one to speak to you, to speak my words to you. He has sent Malachi to remind them of his covenant, to call them to repentance. Malachi's job was to speak the words of God and to pave the way for the one who is to come through prophecy. So that's the present tense, right? Malachi is there and he's telling them what God is saying. He's calling them to repentance. He's putting their sin on the table. And then his response, God's response that is, is not only a present reality, but it's also a prophetic, a future, a prophetic outlook at the coming Messiah. The plan from the very beginning. That one who would come and enter into human history. See, kings used to send messengers or heralds out ahead of time, or excuse me, out ahead of them, so that they would uh, announce the arrival of a king to the town or village that they're going to. In this case, the, the prophetic 
outlook here is that there is one who is going to announce the arrival of the king, one who is going to announce the arrival of the Lord. And who is this? It's good old John the Baptist, J to B. Well, how do we know it's John the Baptist? We know from this prophecy in Malachi 3, we also know in Malachi 4, there is this prophecy given to one who will pave the way for the ultimate messenger. So I'm not gonna quote all of it, this is all on the notes, but listen to Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In Luke 1, we get uh, John the Baptist's um, job description, if you will, and I'll read a portion of it. This is in verses eight through 17, but here's a portion. And he, that is John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That there is one who's gonna be kind of like a trailblazer. He's gonna set up the path for the ultimate messenger, the Lord Jesus himself. We're still on verse one, by the way. Here's what God is telling Israel. When he says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Israel's been waiting for the Messiah for a very, very long time. We learn at the conclusion of Malachi that an additional 400 years of silence go by before we see J to the B on the scene. And so when the Lord says, the one whom you seek, he's reminding them, there is one who will come and arrive. I haven't forgotten this. This is the plan. When he says that he will come to the temple, what does Jesus do? He goes to the temple, he teaches at the temple, he kicks merchants out of the temple. Jesus is the ultimate temple of God. When he says that he is the messenger of the covenant, what was Jesus doing? Jesus was the messenger, uh, yeah, Jesus is the messenger. He is the Lord himself and he's preaching repentance. The ultimate goal of verse one is that this Jesus was always the plan. He is the plan. Jesus is the solution to the problem of sin. And this wasn't something foreign to Israel. It was just something forgotten. If we look back to Genesis once more, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even in the garden, there's a messianic prophecy of one who would come to deliver God's people. This wasn't something foreign to Israel. This is just something forgotten. The plan hasn't changed. Look at verse six for a moment. That's, that's the Lord's opening words. For I, the Lord, do not change. And so for a moment, maybe we can assume 
Israel's vindication. They're reminded of this promise. Like, oh yeah, man, Jesus is coming. Legit, the bad guys are gonna lose. It's awesome. This is great, right? Thank you for reminding us of this promise. But God then stop there. See, another word for God to enact justice is judgment. And that's where Malachi takes us. See, again, you gotta remember Israel's posture. It's one of apathy, it's one of entitlement. And so they're ultimately saying, hey, we deserve God's love because he's blessed us. Therefore, we're the good guys, so wipe out the bad guys. And they forget, just like you and I, that they actually don't deserve anything apart from judgment. They don't deserve anything apart from judgment because they too are sinners. That's why God responds the way he does in verse two. Here we go. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. See, Israel thinks they're good because they're feeling entitled and God is saying, you couldn't endure this judgment either. You've done just as much as non-Christians have done to deserve your salvation, which is what? Absolutely nothing. Israel deserves judgment just as much as any other nation. But God in his kindness has chosen Israel is chosen to love them. Look, you and I deserve condemnation and judgment, and it is only because of his kindness, his goodness, his mercy, his grace that he has called us to himself. To the Romans, Paul says, no one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. To the Ephesians, Paul says that we are nature, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, listen to that one more time, right? That we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, thank God for all the buts in the Bible. This is one of those. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By his grace, you have been taken from spiritual death to spiritual life because of Jesus. It's not because we were awesome or good or he identified certain things. We all deserve condemnation and judgment but God, being rich in mercy by grace, has saved us. And so to that effect, God provides Israel with a contrast between a refiner's fire and a consuming fire. So upon the Lord coming, he will, or the Lord bringing judgment, he will bring two kinds of fires. Let's look at verse six for a moment. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. There's two kinds of fire, right? The refiner's fire, the, to those whom he has called, to those whom uh, belong to him, he brings a refiner's fire. To those who do not know the Lord, to those who are uh, estranged from God, he brings 
a consuming fire. And we're gonna talk about this contrast in a minute, but that's ultimately what Malachi is dropping. He says, man, when the Lord brings judgment, he's gonna bring two kinds of fires, a refiner's uh, fire and a consuming fire. Once more, what we need to remember is that God has not changed. His plan wasn't altered. And everything that Malachi condemns Israel for, Jesus himself takes upon himself. He says that the Lord is gonna come to the temple. Jesus is the ultimate temple. See, the temple that was rebuilt in Malachi's day was meant to foreshadow uh, the glory of God and the coming of the Messiah. And so what ends up happening when Jesus enters into human history, we take the temple of God and we crucify him. Jesus, who was sinless, bore the consuming fire of God's wrath in our place and for our sin on the cross. Israel accuses God of calling what is evil good, yet Jesus was the victim of the truest act of injustice when he was nailed to the cross while a murderer was set free. Jesus became a curse for us and bore God's judgment in our place. And the only way for this fire to pass over us and not consume us was if it first passed over Jesus. And as a result, we are now positionally right with God because of Jesus. Therefore, when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus in us. We are now declared righteous. The fancy word here is that we are justified. And because we are justified, because of God's work for us in Jesus, we can draw near to him. So again, none of this was foreign to Israel, but it was forgotten. And the promise of God is revealed in the person and work of Jesus. So now, let's go back and consider the contrasting fires. One of refinement and one that consumes. Here's where we become a little bit more practical. Here, God, though, he unpacks this contrast through Malachi. Let's remember, uh, what's Israel entitled to? Nothing. Well, what are we entitled to? Absolutely nothing. Remember, their accusation of whether or not God has remembered his covenant with them or, or his lack of judgment, it reveals a very arrogant and hypocritical posture of Israel. Why? Because there's a mountain of evidence of their sin standing right next to them. Israel is trying to posture themselves as, as if they're not only entitled to God's blessing, but as though they're innocent and neutral. They're trying to set themselves up as the judge and they're trying to summon God on their own terms. Like how arrogant is that? So, if they're so deserving of God's love and of his covenant, God says, all right, this is who will be judged. <laughs> Here we go. I think this is verse five. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's walk through that list very briefly so that we can see where we're good. 
Beginning with sorcerers. Like some will say, well, that, those are in the days of the Old Testament. Man, I don't know anybody who practices black magic anymore. Uh, so, so I think we're good. That's an Old Testament sin. And then others will say, yes, exactly. There are some people who practice sorcery. Have you ever been in a tarot card reading? You know, those voodoo dolls, right? And things of that nature in our city, those individuals will be judged. And you're like, yes, right. We want them to come to repentance because we want them to know Jesus. But you're still not in the clear right? Because we're not talking about them, we're talking about you, right? And it's like, well, how are we talking about me? All right, just because you don't subscribe to sorcery as a belief or ideology doesn't mean you don't practice it functionally. <gasps> You're like, whoa, that's really bold. Another word for sorcery is manipulation. So how often do we try and manipulate God in our prayers? Oh, you didn't like that one, right? <laughs> right? How often do we try to manipulate God in our prayers? You probably, me, like me too, right? This is you and I. We wouldn't articulate it that way. But have you ever treated God as though he's a genie in a bottle or your divine butler? No, can no. Right? Or have you ever tried using your faith as an excuse to serve yourself rather than serving others? Hmm. Right, some people will be like, man, I'm just gonna go to church because that's gonna please God and now life is gonna be smoother. Isn't there a hint of manipulation there? Or, or let's consider for a moment last week, right? Remember, men are divorcing their wives, going for wives of a foreign God, other men are pursuing these women as well, and what was their reasoning? Their reasoning is, hey man, I get some social benefit out of this and God's totally still gonna accept my worship. It's not gonna affect my relationship with God. Isn't that manipulation? And then they question God because he says, hey, this is worthless. They're like, how could it be totally worthless? Our plan is legit. Isn't that manipulation? Adulteries. You're like, man, I've never cheated on my spouse physically. Praise God. But uh, are you guarding your eyes? What about pornography, things that you shouldn't be seeing online to where you diminish God's creation, right? Or, for example, the effects of it are not just wicked, but the effects are biological. Or when you pursue this, it actually affects every part of your being. You're like, no, that's not something I do. What about fantasy, where rather than filling your mind with things that are above, you fill your mind with things that you shouldn't be doing with people that you should be honoring, I don't do that. What about emotionally, where you get yourself a little too comfortable and you cross some lines, but you haven't been physical about it, but you get emotionally entangled with someone that is not your spouse and don't act like you're honoring them just because you're cool friends. That you're 1,000% always satisfied with your spouse. Like, so far, that's just two. All right, let's keep going. Let's keep going. <laughs> Those who swear falsely, you've never lied. Ever. One person literally just looks straight down. So, okay. Oppressing the worker, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner. You've never shown partiality at work. Giving your friends the day off, like when you were management back at Walmart that time, right? And you hook up your friends with the day off because it's your bro. The widows and the fatherless. James says that, hey, this is true religion when we care for the widows and the fatherless. <clears throat> Oftentimes, 
the church will say something like, well, that's for nonprofits. That's for like the super saints. It's not for me. The sojourner, that's the stranger, the individual who doesn't know God, the individual who's traveling through. And he concludes with those who do not fear the Lord. They don't know God. They don't have this relationship with God. This might even be individuals who profess God but do not practice their faith. Here's the point. The point is that the evidence is overwhelming and uncompromising against Israel and us. As Isaiah says, we are all like sheep who have gone astray. We are totally depraved because we're sinners. Every single part of us has been impacted and affected by sin. We are sinners by nature and choice. Like, man, you say that a lot because sinners don't know they're sinners. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't make up so many reasons to justify why we do what we do. And yet at the same time, we grumble and complain about God's goodness being absent. See, we, like Israel, are deserving of being consumed, not refined. But God, rich in his mercy and grace, has saved us. So what's the difference between these two fires? Let's look at a consuming fire first. This one's gonna be the shortest one. A consuming fire shows absolutely no partiality. Have you ever seen videos of a forest fire? That thing just spreads and burns everything in sight. It doesn't refine, it wrecks. Those who do not know the Lord will be consumed. They will be judged according to their own account. Listen to Revelation 19. And a lot of people really love the beginning of Revelation 19 because it sounds like Jesus is some like divine UFC fighter. Here's what it says. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Here it is. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Right, many Christians are like, man, that's such a powerful image. It is. It absolutely is. And that is a scary image where he will tread the wine press. You know, that means where he will crush the grapes, right? He's gonna, he's gonna judge the nations. That's a consuming fire where Jesus will deal with all of sin finally and fully. So what about the refiner's fire or this thing called the fuller's soap in verses three and four? Right, this is what Israel gets. This is God's grace. This is, if you are in Jesus, this is what you get by his grace. Let me finish reading. Um, Let's go through verse three. He says, he will sit 
as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, those are the priests, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah, which is Israel, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. All right, here we go. This illustration of a refiner uh, is one who essentially heats gold and silver up to extreme temperatures so that they would essentially begin to melt. And as they melt, they become liquid. And when they become liquid, impurities rise to the surface. And what the refiner does is when he sees that these impurities have rise to the surface, the refiner removes those impurities, reheats it all back up, and repeats that process until the gold is made pure. When it comes to the individual with a, the fuller's soap, this is, uh, it's something similar. In other words, this is... Uh, Someone who's using bleach, really, really, really strong soap in order to get stains off of the clothes, to remove those stains from the clothing. And so here's what Malachi is saying. For those who belong to God, they will receive a refiner's fire. In other words, God is going to work in them. And by his grace, he's going to remove their impurities. He's going to remove their stains. He's going to make them pure. Peter says something similar. This is chapter one. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the life and work of Jesus, sinners like you and me are not simply forgiven of our sin. We are also released from the power of sin. See, if dying on the cross uh, in our place was not enough, the Lord Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to reside in us. This means that we're given a new heart with new desires. And part of God's work in us is to purify us so that we would be conformed further into the image of Jesus. So that we would know and live like Jesus. And though we're forgiven, though we are new, I know part of the pushback is, but I still sin. I still fail really, really bad. The presence of sin still exists. And by God's grace, that's why we walk through this process called sanctification. See, as Christians, change is both immediate and inevitable. There are some things that happen radically and then there are some things that just take, uh, take time. But change, nevertheless, is inevitable. And this transformation, this change is not the result of willpower, it is the result of God at work in us and us responding to that work. That's what sanctification is. It's God now at work in me and me responding to that work. See, sanctification, this fancy word, sanctification is not simply the stopping of our sin. And I think sometimes as Christians, that's where we, we, we kind of, Finished, right? Sanctification is just me not sinning anymore. No, no, no. It's not just that. 
It's not just the stopping of our sin. It's also about the growing depth of our dependence on God. See, because of God's work for us in Jesus, we can now respond to the work of, of the Spirit in us. Remember, you have been freed from the power of sin. Yes, the presence of sin still exists, but because the Spirit of God resides in you, you can say no to your sin and yes to Jesus. We're not changing to be better humans. We're changing so that we would be truly human. We're not changing so that we would just be less sinful people, but so that we would be dependent on God people. And this is good news. This is good news because even on our worst and weakest days, the goodness of God is still for and at work in us. When you're convicted of your sin, is that not the spirit of God in you working? Israel isn't consumed not because of their deep sense of justice and morality. We are not consumed because God saw something good in us and we, made, we took the proper steps to move forward. We are not consumed because Jesus stood in our place and received a consuming fire for us. So when we go through refinement, it's not a sign of reprobation, but sanctification. If God's goodness requires that bad people get what's coming to them, then on what basis do we stand, church? The goodness of God is grounded in his character and promise, not in our character or in our promises. And because of that, we can trust God in spite or in the middle of difficult circumstances or hardship. And to be quite frank, this is also where community comes in. This is why community is so important because we can point one another to God's goodness in our lives. In the thick of it, you and I are forgetful, but with faithful brothers and sisters around us, they are quick to remind us of his goodness for us. When we forget about God's goodness and then live as though we think he's forgotten about us, two pieces of evidence suggest that this is why we've become forgetful, because we're absent in the word of God and absent with the people of God. The author of Hebrews encourages us to all the more pay attention to what we have just heard, lest we drift away. Israel's condition didn't happen overnight, but over time. And so if you find yourself in a season where you're just absolutely forgetful of God's goodness, I can pretty much guarantee those two things are absent. Therefore, as a result, I would, or not even as a result, as an encouragement, I would, I would tell you, man, seek out a brother, seek out a sister. Hey, this is what's been going on. Allow them to point you back to the goodness of God. And that's the gracious reminder of God's goodness for us. The Holy Spirit reminds you and me that Jesus is the promised son who dealt with the problem of our sin head on and then purifies us so that we might become like him. So Christian, have you forgotten God's goodness for you? 
Do you find yourself accusing him, mocking him, questioning him as far as where have you gone? Why are you allowing this to happen? Do you find yourself in that posture? And maybe you don't say it with your lips, but maybe you say it with your life. Or if you're in a season where you are heavily focused and reminded on the goodness of God, praise God for that. Now, go and seek a brother and sister to encourage. Because I promise you they're spiritually dry. Right, Proverbs says that, man, a good word brings life to dead bones. And if you're not a Christian, a consuming fire is a hard word to hear, and I don't take pleasure in saying it, but my job, as we looked at my job description a couple of weeks ago, is to preach the full counsel of God. And the gospel declares that those who do not know God stand condemned before God, estranged from God, at war with God, yet he has made it possible for sinners to come and know him through Jesus. Where the fire that awaits isn't a consuming one, but a refining one. One where your sins are washed away, your heart is new, and your life is transformed for his glory and your good. Church, God's goodness is dependent, thankfully, on his character, not ours. Let's pray. God, we confess, we confess that we are forgetful of your goodness. We confess that we regularly try to define your goodness based on what we want it to be for us rather than on who you are, who you have revealed yourself to be, and what you're doing in us. God, if we're honest, as a result, we end up growing apathetic, complacent, and cynical of you, your promises, and toward one another. Lord, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our sin and and give us the grace to fill our minds with your promises and work. To reject the lies that come at us from our own sinful desires, from the culture and anything else that is not of you. In short, Father, would you keep us from lies?